Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Good evening to all of my listeners on the East Coast and the West Coast, uh, and uh, hello to everybody else all over the world, because I don't have it memorized what time it would be (coughs) at. But um, uh, you're listening to V Radio. If this is your first time listening to V Radio, please check out my website, v-radio.org. Uh, there you can find archives of other shows like this one, interviews with <coughs> scientists, uh, politicians, the few good ones, um, lots of documentary filmmakers, and great roundtable discussions about issues that are pertinent to an activist in this world. You can also check out my must-see TV list, which is a list of free documentaries that you can watch on the Internet that I think are pertinent to anyone who is socially conscious and concerned about this world. I have more shows coming up this month. I will be doing the, uh, uh, hopefully, the conclusion with Michael Shanklin and my discussion with him about anarcho-capitalism. Uh, I want to say one of the reasons why that show got held up a little bit is that in doing my research for anarcho-capitalism, what I found is, is that they don't even really have a very clear idea of what they think. Um, so you're basically kind of arguing with someone and they'll say, well... Uh, that's something Ayn Rand said, and I don't, I don't subscribe to that specific thing she said. I'm like, oh, okay, well, what about Mises? Well, I agree with this part of what Mises says, but I don't agree with this other part that Mises says. You know, it's like basically every anarcho-capitalist you talk to is completely different, so trying to really coalesce an argument about their point of view is difficult, mostly because of the fact that you will find as you converse with them that they will move the goalposts constantly um, to avoid basically being pinned down in any certain issue. I've basically prepared what I would say is my best rebuttal to the things that he said so far, and we'll take it from there. I haven't contacted Victor Pross yet, but because you guys voted for me going ahead and, and bringing him on the show to have it out, I'm going to go ahead and do that. I'm just going to warn you guys ahead of time that I have a feeling that that's not going to be your typical intellectually stimulating, peaceful V-radio conversation with somebody I just happen to disagree with. Um, and in addition to that, on a much brighter note, uh, Ben Stewart, the filmmaker of Chimatica and Esoteric Agenda, will be coming on my uh, show uh, also this month to discuss his new TV show. Um, all of the details uh, for that are in the description of that particular show, defined by um, clicking follow on my blog talk page. Um, and the man who seems to be dying of uh, coughing fit on the in the distance would be my guest for tonight, Doug Millette. Welcome, Doug. I'm trying not to die from a coughing fit. I'm just slowly trying to get rid of this nonsense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been some kind of evil plague that went around. Um, I, I was happy enough that I only got like a like a 24-hour version of it. I was nauseous and. You know, not keeping food down, and I had a fever, but I just kind of slept it off with some good vitamin C. Uh, I thought I had my microphone muted. I apologize for that. I did, but... <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry about it. Um, so, well, Doug, first of all, uh, to those of you who may have not know who you are, could you just give a brief introductory as to, like, you know, uh, your relationship to the Zeitgeist Movement, how you got started all this? Oh, okay. That could be a long story in and of itself. Um, well, first, before I start with that, thanks for having me on again. Long time no chat, my friend. <laughs> indeed, indeed. 
uh, life has been very busy lately. But, uh, yeah, so my involvement with the Zeitgeist movement is loosely affiliated. Um, I'm not one of those bongo-beating, standing on the side of the corners, waving flags kind of activists. I never have been, nor will I ever be one of those kind of activists. It's just not my thing. It's good for the people who like to do it. Um, but what I did is a long time ago, uh, in a galaxy far, far away, it feels like. I was in uh, school, university, getting my uh, aerospace systems engineering degree, and I ended up running across the original Zeitgeist film, and I thought, wow, that's pretty interesting. Wow, it's pretty controversial, and ha, it's going to piss off a lot of people. But <laughs> it didn't really – that was it. That's as far as I ever went with it. I just thought, wow, that's an interesting kind of uh, take on things. Some of it I agreed with. Some of it I didn't. Some of it – I didn't even know before, like how money was made, like, and all that stuff. Because, you know, we're not taught that, so, of course, how am I supposed to know? Right. Well, even even in college-level economics, they sure as hell don't go into the Federal Reserve fiat currency and how everything's invented out of thin air and charged on interest that can never be paid back and all that. So, <clears throat> anyway, then uh, addendum came out. And that was the one where, okay, we've kind of narrowed down the focus to issues that I think are most pertinent, and voila, there's a solution at the end. Now, I'm a scientist engineer guy, so people can bitch and complain about problems all they want, but I also want to hear solution options. The problem I had with the first film, and of course, it was never supposed to be a solution film. It was Peter Joseph's way of screaming the world in a cathartic you know, way of the way he wanted to do it. It just got popular. And then with Addendum, they had a solution set that I looked at, and that's where we introduced, got introduced to the Venus Project. And I was like, aha, well, of course, that makes a lot more sense. That reminds me of a Mars base or a moon base or how something like that would have to operate. Because, as I jokingly say in my lectures, there are no Walmarts in orbit, thank God. So you don't have this constant resupply system, so you have to design everything sustainably, whether it's the space shuttle as much as possible, the IASS, stuff like that. So that's kind of what somewhat got me involved with the movement, uh, at least as far as an awareness level. It was when I moved to Houston, though, and I started doing um, lectures and presentations about the RBE and the Venus Project and what they were proposing and how that kind of ties into the space industry and what they do. And me being an engineer working with the space shuttle program kind of carried with it some weight because I guess in the eyes of the movement, there was a lot of artists, but not a lot of technical people up there right. speaking. And I finally was one. And I kind of, uh, I made a short film called Awakening. Um, and that's kind of, I guess, what launched my fame or success or notoriety or, you know, trolling and all the other stuff that comes with it. But, <laughs> but um, I made this little 30-minute video, uh, kind of like a Reader's Digest or condensed version of the Zeitgeist films or, or what it, what's wrong with the world? Well, how do we get where we are? And uh, it's just a common sense uh, approach to the issues. And it took off and got popular. And uh, I did a few more presentations and stuff like that. But I never saw the movement as a venue to do something. It was more of a venue to get people to wake up. And then the people were supposed to go out and do something. Um, I get a little tired of hearing this nonsense of, well, what's the Zeitgeist Movement doing? Well, the Zeitgeist Movement is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. 
it raises awareness. It intellectually stimulates the brain on the problems and possible and potential solutions. Now, how you want to bring that about? Whew, there's like a hundred paths you could take on that one. And there's no one organization that's going to do it. Um, so the Venus Project has its way and methods of doing things. Of course, there was the whole big divorce, whatever you want to call it, between TZM and TVP. Um, I, I got to the point, though, where I decided to kind of pull away from all of the above and focus on what I, I want to do to help affect positive change in the world that will move us to a better future. Whether they call that transitional steps or whatever, um, the world's not going to flip to an RBE in one shot. Anybody who thinks that is delusional and living in fantasy land. It's going to be incremental steps over time that erode the old system and bring about something better or a, a derivation thereof. And that's kind of what bore what I'm doing now, which is Cybernated Farm Systems, the company that I've started for sustainable agriculture. Well, that brings us basically full circle um, to those you know, of my listeners who may not have uh, had a chance to listen to any of the shows that we had before. Um, and I guess you know, Cybernated Farm Systems was kind of the one of the primary things that I wanted to talk about tonight to give you an opportunity to uh, um, basically come forward about that and talk about what your goals with it are. And if you want to dispel any myths or negative rumors you may have heard about it, you know, feel free to do the same. Um, I guess uh, start off with just by saying, you know, what is Cybernated Farm Systems? Cybernated Farm Systems, what, what I did is <clears throat> it started with the Haitian earthquake uh, five years ago, actually, we just recently had the anniversary of that catastrophe. And at the time, I had just learned about a system called Contour Crafting, which was developed by Dr. Kushnevis, a professor at the University of Southern California. He's actually come a long way since then. He has a lot going on with Contour Crafting that I'm excited about. But it's about a robot that can build a 2,000-square-foot house in 24 hours. Right. Uh, basically, it's a gigantic 3D printer, in, in effect. And I saw what the potential was for disaster relief in that. I mean, you mow off the rubble, you maybe recycle and crunch down as much as you can, and you put that right back into the system, and you kind of crunch out these houses, ka-chunk, 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 and you rebuild neighborhoods really fast. And I thought, well, that's perfect in an area where the infrastructure is broken, so what else could be done? And I go, well, agriculture. You could ship in a bunch of food. That's going to cost a boatload of money. That is not a long-term sustainable solution. And you know people are going to screw with it and take their dimes and nickels off the top, which is why it's such a mess in the first place. So couldn't you design and develop a sustainable agriculture system that can operate off-grid? And that's exactly what I designed. And so I set about the process of applying what I knew about how the space shuttle worked and the space station and my background in the aerospace field and designed a highly automated aquaponic greenhouse that is off the grid. It's solar power, collects its own rainwater, uh, manages and runs itself as computer controlled for the most part. Um, I'd say 90% of it runs on its own, but you would have a staff of maybe – yeah, two or three people just to kind of double check in on the thing every once in a while, um, help with harvesting when needed because it depends on what you grow as to how automated you can make harvesting. There's a lot to it. It's not as easy as just some robotic arm going in there and yanking plants. First of all, 
robotic arms are prohibitively expensive right now. If you want something with the dexterity that you need, you're talking two, three, four hundred thousand dollars for one fracking arm. That's uh, ridiculous right now. Now later on, I'm sure that will come down. Technology usually does, uh, but that's what I design, and I've been I've set about since then to develop uh, this into a full-blown company. Um, about six months ago, I developed an international board of advisors. I have representatives from Nigeria, Uganda, the UK, uh, South America. Um, I have people all around the U.S. in different disciplines from electrical engineers to computer scientists to software managers, um, software designers, sorry, um, to uh, social media experts who can you know, really launch us to the next level when we get to that point. Um, so I built this board of advisors, and we have been seeking funding to build a prototype system so we can design the software and design the management protocols that would go into making this system run. Um, one of the beauties about what I've designed is a lot of it's off the shelf, and it does exist in different aspects. Um, you know, aquaponics is not new been around a long time, a really long time if you go back to ancient Egypt, but aquaponics has been around quite some time. Um, the technologies to manage greenhouses and affect uh, the climate control systems inside, the pH balance of the water, the humidity inside, uh, how much light the plants get, uh, LEDs to, to, to help uh, balance out low light levels from the sun. I mean, most of the building is going to be done through the sun. You know, it's a greenhouse, so you can let all the sunlight come in naturally and use mylar and reflective surfaces to uh, redirect light as needed. Um, vertical farm stack, uh, grow beds, things like that. People can go to our company website, which is cyberfarmsystems.com, cyberfarmsystems.com, and you can see uh, concept art renderings. Uh, pretty high-quality CG graphic renderings of what a facility may look like. Now, I say, I say concept art because when we design the prototype, one of the biggest things you do in prototype development is take your concept and then streamline the hell out of it. And so the final product will probably not look exactly like that. Uh, of course, the hope is that it will always be better than that. It will be improved upon from that baseline point. And uh, that's where we are Right now, I'll kind of take a breath so you can interject. <laughs> no, that all sounds very good. I guess um, now I know that you've been saying that you're planning on uh, doing some, basically, some traveling in the near future to different countries. Mm -hmm. Is this to basically seek more support for this project? Oh yes. Um, a while back, I was fortunate enough to get an investor uh, who gave us $100,000 to work with. And uh, part of that investment was to keep me afloat personally so that I can continue doing this. And part of that was to use to advance CFS in various ways, basically use money to get money or use the money for travel, for conferences, for lectures, to get to get the idea in front of people and network and build those connections and build those relationships. And so um, that's, that's what I've been doing as of late. It's really ramped up. In fact, starting Monday, it's going to get hot and heavy. But I'll go back to a couple of, well, last month, I was invited, well, I can go back even further. It, lectures build on each other. Um, <clears throat> It's like a domino effect. I did the 
I did the original lecture I did in Houston, which got people excited. So then a lot of people pitched in and made it financially possible for me to go to Switzerland to the Co in 2010 to the Co Initiatives of Change conference where I spoke about sustainability and and the Venus project and and some of the different iterations and where the space program jives with that and things like that. It was well received. A lot of people found it fascinating. Um at the Initiatives of Change, it is actually a co-UN sponsored event, which of course all the conspiracy theorists are going to crap biscuits when they hear that kind of stuff, but whatever. I give two craps about the people who go off the deep end about all this agenda this and agenda that. I don't care. Right. You know, you've got to use what's in front of you, and just as long as you don't let yourself get corrupted and twisted in the process, I don't expect myself to turn to the dark side anytime soon even though I love playing the Empire on Sotor. But <laughs> that is a right. video game. Anyway, so I, that lecture led to other lectures, other opportunities. So it's like, you know, almost like the genesis of the Bible. You know, everybody begets everybody else. Well, this uh, lecture beget, beget this, beget that. So I ended up going to Los Angeles a little while back to uh, last year, last not this last December, but the one before, Speak, speaking at a, an extreme futurist festival conference, and that put me in contact with a gentleman who was very interested in what I was doing with Cybernate. This was more about CFS, more about my company, uh, and global sustainability in general. I've kind of <clears throat> I stopped talking about groups and organizations because that can skew the message sometimes if people already have a preconceived notion in their head about a group or an, an entity. So I stopped labeling with TZM and TVP a long time ago because um, I don't think it does any good as far as what I'm trying to tell people. Did you I, ever uh, did you ever see Monty Python and the Life of Brian? Yes. There's one scene in particular, and I try to like avoid ever talking about the split thing, but I generally sum it up by just posting a link to the piece of the video where he goes, Are you the People's Front of Judea? Oh, piss off. We're the People's Judean Front. Exactly. <laughs> you know, I just that's kind of where I, I left off with that. I'm I'm friends with everybody involved, so I try to stay away from it, but um overall that that, that is a when people lots of people came to me and said, What do you think about it? I said, Well um, I, I, I don't like the way it went down, um, but I'm friends with these people. They're not just like internet personalities to me, so I'm not taking sides in it. They haven't asked me to take sides in it, so um I, I do think the whole thing's a little silly, but I, but I leave it at that. Um, overall, though, uh, you know, as far as the rest of it, I understand what you're talking about in regards to, to labels and you know and associations and all that, especially uh, with all the studies I've been doing lately on the way that uh, public opinion gets swayed so easily through you know very skillful you know manipulations mm-hmm. and. So overall, I, I definitely understand where you're coming from, and it doesn't really—I mean, it doesn't really matter in the long run anyway. I mean, if you pull this off, then you know, then essentially you'll have proven one of our, you know, theoretical technologies that Fresco talks about. You know, can work with existing technology. Um, you know, it'll be working uh, a working prototype of one of the more critical aspects of it. Um, obviously, all of the technology for hydroponics and different systems like that currently exists, but it requires, you know, it requires labor like anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so I definitely, 
advocate for that. Uh, have you thought about talking to the people who did the uh, the Global Village construction set, Marcin Jakubowski and the resource, or, I'm sorry, the uh, open source ecology people about your project? No, I haven't because I'm, <clears throat> well, no, that's not true. I did not too long ago, but they're not that high tech. Mm. And I am. And I think that's the biggest disconnect is, is I, I'm using space age technology crap. You know, I'm, I'm making this thing uh, on, a, on, a, on the next level, and they're not. Um, not that that's a bad thing. I, I understand what they're doing uh, and, and their philosophy, but they're not that high tech. And so there's kind of – there's not a whole lot in common with that. Um, but back to what I was saying about, uh, you know, abandoning labels and all that. So when I do my lectures, it's basically about CFS or global sustainability in general with a space-age twist. So it's like a space exploration twist. People get that. That's easy for them to digest. Later on, if they ask questions afterwards, then I can throw out different groups they can go take a look at and check out on their own and stuff like that. But for the most part, once you get them thinking in a different way, and then you can throw the labels at them or whatever. Uh, but anyway, so that one conference led to uh, my most recent trip in Amsterdam where I um and another trip to Switzerland I was invited back to co this last summer which developed even more relationships and contacts and every time I do one of these I'm building more relationships and more contacts um for people who understand that the world is changing. And it's kind of funny because sometimes in, in these little activist movements, little, I mean, TZM is not really little, but in activist movements in general, you sometimes get people who are so pissed off at the system or so upset with how everything is that they can't fathom that there are people in positions of authority and whatnot who do understand that the world is changing. Right. And there's, there's got to be ways to mold and shape and make that happen in a responsible way. And it's going to take time. And sometimes the extremist activists want it to happen yesterday. And that's just – that's catastrophic anyway. That can't happen that way. But there are upper-level people, and I have met them and had conversations because I come from this kind of quasi-academic background with my technical skill sets and what I'm doing with my company and being able to talk and network the way I do that – there are people in certain groups that you probably would not believe but do understand and see where the world is going. And it's not the old way of doing things. And it definitely isn't, you know, capitalism or communism or socialism or any of the old isms. It is something else. I mean, technoism. <laughs> I don't know what, whatever they want to label it. But through these through these processes, I, I've built up enough relationships to where now, coming up in the near future, um, I've started to submit. I started to submit CFS as a uh, to sustainability conferences and agriculture conferences because a lot of these conferences are looking for people to present new and exciting ways of doing things, and that's exactly what CFS is. So I leave Monday with my vice president to go to Croatia and speak at a conference there. I was. Um, I submitted an abstract, a proposal paper. It was uh, peer-reviewed by the conference judges and stuff like that that are involved with running the conference. They liked what they saw. They invited me to come. So there was that. Uh, five days after I get back, I leave again on February 1st to Abu Dhabi to the GFIA uh, 2014 conference, which is 
uh, co-sponsored in part by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, um, quite a few other big philanthropic organizations, the University of Arizona. Uh, people can look up GFIA 2014 and see what that conference is all about. It's all about uh, advancing technical agriculture, sustainable agriculture. Um, I am an exhibitor there. I did uh, submit to be a speaker and I was too late to get in. They, they actually, by the time I found out about this conference, I was about two months behind schedule on when they had already decided who they were booking for speakers and stuff like that. Um, although they did tell me, you know, if you'd have come with us in time, we probably would have put you on stage because what you have in mind is really good. So come back next year and we'll put you on stage. Um, so that, and hopefully by that time next year, we will have a lot more going on with CFS. And I'll go into some details about that in a little bit. Well, what I can go into. <clears throat> anyway, um, so what we got Croatia, then we got Abu Dhabi, then I'm back for a couple of weeks and I go to Cambodia. Uh, Cambodia is about, um, that's one of my Switzerland connections. The people, one of the gentlemen that I met at Co. the very first time I went to Co. Switzerland to speak, I met the high counselor to the king of Cambodia. His name is Son Sorber. And... You meet these people in the weirdest kind of ways. Nobody is wearing these big fancy labels of who they are. They're just regular people walking around the conference, and you all actually have communal breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Everybody does. So you could be sitting down at a table talking to somebody, and this is what happened. And we just started talking about CFS, and he started talking about Cambodia, and we were having this amazing conversation, and we exchanged business cards, and that's when I learned who the hell he was. <laughs> right. And uh, I was like, wow, okay. But it was a great conversation. You basically drop your titles at the door. There are dignitaries and diplomats and all kinds of people at, at this conference in Switzerland who don't carry that weight around with them which is fantastic. It makes it a very amazing place to be. Well, he said, if I ever had the resources to come visit his country, let him know. And he would make some things happen so I could talk to certain heads of state in Cambodia or people in universities and stuff like that. Well, now that I have the resources to do so, I contacted him and I said, is the offer still there? And he goes, not only is the offer still there, you can stay at my house while you're here. And so I'm visiting Cambodia, staying with His Excellency for a couple of days and visiting with different uh, groups, organizations, government figures, things like that uh, on behalf of CFS to kind of get the word out. And then I come back and I might be going to Amsterdam again, except this time I'd be going to Amsterdam for Z-Day. Uh, the Rotterdam Z-Day for Netherlands invited me to come speak about sustainability and CFS and kind of ways to make the RBE happen and what I'm doing as this incremental, realistic, transitional step. And so I was invited to come speak there. So I'm probably going to go to back to uh, Rotterdam, actually not Amsterdam, but to Rotterdam for that in mid-March. Then I have a couple of months gap. And then in June, I was accepted, again, like another proposal like Croatia, I was accepted to speak at a conference in Osaka, Japan, that's on global sustainability and or sustainability in general, and part of it is food security and sustainable agriculture is one of their tracks. And I submit about CFS there, and they liked what they saw. They invited me to come and present at that conference in Osaka, and that's in June. And so that's kind of the uh, the frequent flyer schedule <laughs> for the next couple of months. 
Wow. How is your family going to cope with you being gone all this time? They, they, well, I'd say they love it. Not in that, that woohoo, dad's gone, but <laughs> mm-hmm. they love it because they know what it's all about, what, what we're trying to, what I'm trying to do, uh, that the, the, the company is starting to pick up steam. Um, it's starting to get awareness. Awareness is starting to build in the right areas in certain circles of academia, certain circles of investment groups. Um, that kind of leads into the last couple of weeks. Um, we've been having some meetings with an investment firm um, who is not your typical investment firm. I know a lot of people hear investment firm and they go, oh, my God, big money, capitalists, oh, profit, profit, profit. Mm, hold your horses a bit. Um, this organization just recently worked with China to do a $2 billion eco-resort. It's a completely off-the-grid, sustainable eco-resort. So you get to go have your fun, but it's also super clean, and it's ecologically sound and sustainable. So they invest in sustainable green eco-technologies. That's what this investment firm kind of does. So not all investment firms are the same. and ended up making contact with them. We've been having some discussions. Um, that's as much as I'm going to talk about now about that because there's still a lot of things going on. Um, but rest assured that if, if things progress to a, to a good level, uh, everybody will know. Uh, I post relevant updates on the CFS Facebook page, um, Cybernated Farm Systems. Just look that up on Facebook and you will find us. And if you follow that, if anybody follows that, they will get the regular updates that we post, um, whether it's something related to PR or a lecture or potential investment, things that are coming down the road. Well, excellent. Um, I guess basically what we're looking at now is, you know, you're going to be working on getting this this system now, I guess the question is going to be when this is finally finished, and I guess this is always something that's kind of a a problem. I mean, it comes back to like the the creator of the polio vaccine. It was like, who is this going to belong to? You know, is it your intention to make this invention a like public domain? I've had people ask me that before, and my answer to that was I wasn't sure. Uh, I had originally thought about making it open source and all that, but I am now going to say no. I'm actually not going to open source it yet. And I know people are going, oh, my God, what's happened to him? Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's a legitimate reason why you don't want to open source something that high tech. People will steal it. They will kidnap it from you. And we're talking, if I were to open source the blueprints to this, there is nothing that would stop Monsanto from getting it, tweaking 10% of it, and then copywriting it and patenting it themselves. And now everybody's screwed. Right. There's no reason why any other major bank or company couldn't do the same thing, buy it up and hide it. Why the hell would I let the floodgate open like that for that to happen? Oh, that's a fair point. No way. No way. I I don't trust them, the quote-unquote them. I don't trust them. Uh, I trust me as much as people can go through my history and see all the lectures I've done and see how consistent I've been on what I believe and how I think the world is going. And I guess at some point, you either trust me or you don't. 
and the proof will be in the pudding when you see how things are, are being done with the company. Um, now, how CFS systems, you know, one of the questions I get asked is who buys these? Um, who, who's the customer base for, for something like this? Um, we are not mom and pop, you know, your, your household backyard kind of greenhouse. Um, it costs way too much for that. Uh, and it feeds way way more people than a simple family of four. Uh, the typical building is going to feed anywhere between 600 and 1,000 people um, out of one building. And that's a different variety of uh, fruits and vegetables depending upon what's being grown. The entire building is going to be highly customizable and modular. So it's going to be customer specific as to where it's going, what's its purpose, what is it trying to do, things like that. Um, if a bunch of farmers want to come together as a co-op and buy a couple of buildings and reduce their own personal labor on how much they have to grow and stuff like doing it the old school way, they could do that. And then if they want to sell the produce at market or whatnot, I don't have a problem with that. Because in the long run, the whole point is to flood the world with these buildings and similar systems. There are other companies kind of doing their own different things, vertical farms inside old office towers, converting warehouses like uh, what the guy did in Chicago with the plant, um, things like that. So there are other ways of doing it. I'm covering a specific niche. Um, these are 5,000 square foot buildings that feed between 600 and 1,000 people completely off the grid with composting systems built into it. Uh, all the leftover electricity can be siphoned and used by uh, people that are being served. For example, the, the uh, scenario for that is you put one of these buildings in a remote village in Africa where people are starving to death, and their primary means of communication with the outside world are cell and satellite phones. That's pretty much the only way they can communicate these days. Right. Um, and they don't have an energy infrastructure. It's not like they're on a grid. So they have to bring all these nasty-ass diesel generators and stuff like that out there, or and then they have to pay for the gas to refuel them and everything else. Well, or solar generators if they can get them. But with a CFS building, there's going to be plenty of time where it's passive, where it's just kind of sitting there growing plants, and it's not using as much energy as it's taking in. There's no reason why they can't plug into it, charge their cell phone so that they have, a, have the safety and security of knowing that, you know, that's there. Um, you know, it can clean water bodies. I'm working with a water restoration company, so we're going to have built into the system. We could basically plug a CFS building into a local lake or a local river, and if that lake or river is polluted – we will actually have a system built in that will clean it over time. Um, and so now the building well, that's actually is actually really in need, especially in places like Africa where they can't even get clean drinking water. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things we're going to do. That's what there's, that's why I developed this philosophy called sus plus S U S plus sus plus is sustainability plus uh, being sustainable is not good enough. And a lot of people are like, what being sustainable is not good enough. Well, Think about what's the definition of sustainable. To sustain is to just maintain a flat line, right? You're not going up. You're not going down. You're sustaining. Well, that's good if you want to just flatline with no progress whatsoever, but wouldn't it be nice to maybe give something back instead of just sustain? Well, I would much rather have an electric car. I mean, okay, let me change it. 
An electric car is great. Wouldn't it be better to have an electric car that pumps out more oxygen so into the atmosphere so that it can help combat global warming or something like that? What if it had a bonus to it? Besides just being an electric car, it had some pluses, henceforth, sus plus. So the different pluses that a building would have, I mean, the main job of a CFS facility is to grow food, right? But we could have composting systems. We have the energy systems. We have the potential to have chicken farming on the side, vermiculture built into the building. So now the people can get eggs and chickens and worms and different kinds of bugs that can be grown off of that. So you could kind of branch that off to a whole separate building or a little side building, things like that. Uh, there's a lot of potential with what we're doing because the aquaponics specialist that I brought on board is working on his master's and eventually his Ph.D. in the subject of high-yield automated sustainable aquaponic systems which include vermiculture composting and all the above and so when i met him and told him what i was doing he was like holy crap that's my thesis <laughs> and i was like good you come work with me and we'll make your thesis part of the company and maybe we'll even be able to partner with the universities that way which we're probably going to do uh, with the university of central florida because that's where he goes and really do some amazing things. And so I brought him on board, and there are a lot of hidden potentials that even I never originally thought of, which is great because I never claimed to be the know-it-all of aquaponics in the first place. You know, a lot of people, especially the trolls, who have nothing better to do than to whine and complain in their mom's basement, so whatever the hell they do all day, um, constantly try to attack about stuff that they know nothing about and they try to make accusations like, oh, well, what do you know about growing anything? Well, I don't. Well, that's not the point. I'm a systems engineer. That's why you the go find is, people who do. <laughs> yeah, I go hire the person that does. I mean, do you, do you think uh, the, the manager or the, or the person who starts, uh, who's running AT&T or, or any Silicon Valley corporation knows all of the intimate details of everything that all the departments do? No. That's why you hire subject matter experts. SMEs is what we call them in the space industry. You hire your subject matter experts, and that's what their job is. And then you bounce ideas off of each other to come up with the best plausible solution within the, within the framework you're trying to work with. Um, <clears throat> actually, uh, it's funny that you bring that up. Uh, somebody asked me a while ago, uh, what, uh, where, where did you go to college? University of Central Florida. That's where you went to college? That's where mm -hmm. you got your diploma? Yes. It's, it's a stupid question, but people for some reason brought that up. Um, and, and other than that, uh, just as far as – I just want to turn the conversation back to more positives. Now that you've been to some other countries about this, can you speak of anything like uh, memorable from any of these cultures that you encountered? Oh, like what? Just in other words, like, you know, uh, any memorable moments from visiting these countries? Well, some of them I haven't been to yet. I, I gave you the list of stuff that's coming up. But, um, you know, I was, when I was in Amsterdam recently, mm -hmm. um, that was actually a really, a really good conference. They, the, the group, the presentation that I did there, it was about 200 and some odd dollars a ticket to go there. Um, 
And a lot of people ask me, wow, that's kind of high. Why do they do that? And I, I actually asked the, the organizer of the, of the conference, the woman who invited me, I was like, why are the ticket prices so high? And she goes, well, we do a couple of events every year. Some of them are a lot cheaper. Some of them are free. And some of them, like this one, we bring in high-level academics. If somebody wants to pay $200 to come, that means they really want to hear what's being said. Right. They're, they have a vested interest. That means they're either academics or they're investors or they're uh, part of media who really want to get the information out. Um, they're, they're kind of more legitimate. They're not just your off-the-street college kid who's like, dude, that's awesome kind of stuff. It's a much uh, higher level of people um, who, are, who are attending that event. And that kind of made sense. And it's nice that she does other events throughout the year, too, that cater to all the demographics. But the particular one that I was invited to was, I guess you could say, the higher end, like the platinum level <laughs> event or whatever you want to call it. <clears throat> so um, in discussing with them and, and, and going through what I was talking about and looking what the other people were talking about um, – they're really interested in sustainable agriculture and doing things in a new way. Um, and in fact, once we're, I'd say, 75% through prototype development and we have a couple of test runs under our belt and stuff like that, I already have connections with through her with different entities that would be interested in putting my systems in certain parts of Amsterdam. Uh, old industrial districts that aren't really used anymore, we could have uh, open access to, stuff like that. So those those conversations have already been had. Like I said, I'm always networking. I'm always building for the future. Uh, every time I do these, these things, I'm handing out cards and, you know, kissing babies and shaking hands <laughs> to, to, uh, to try and see what we can do to help people, to improve the lives of, of mankind in general, um, and even in the first or developed or whatever world you want to call it, you know, they're your, basically your main America and your main Europe, uh, and even in, in, you know, Asia, some parts of Asia, uh, they need sustainable agriculture too. And, you know, systems like what I've come up with and, and smaller ones that can be done in people's own backyards and stuff like that are starting to really catch on as a, I guess you could say the murmur is starting. And, uh, strike while the iron's hot. And so that's what Amsterdam shed light on to me was the fact that even a place like that is interested in in um, in what CFS has in mind. Uh, I was fortunate enough to go and have a meeting when I was in Amsterdam. I had a meeting with an organization called Rabobank. Rabobank is actually a big multinational bank. They started off about 100 and some odd years ago as a coalition of farmers. It's a farmer's bank. And um, they kind of expanded and they kind of got away from themselves, which a lot of banks do sometimes, especially in today's world. But they have since kind of reset themselves and said, we've got to go back to our roots. So they were very interested in hearing what I had to say. So I went and had a meeting at their corporate headquarters at Rabobank uh, International uh, down in uh, Rotterdam. And that conversation went really well. I developed some connections there, which will help. Uh, now, Rabobank is all over Europe, 
And there's different ways to leverage that relationship to get into uh, other countries and do sustainable agriculture uh, all over the place. So it's not – although my primary focus uh, is humanitarian in many respects in working with nonprofits and NGOs and Peace Corps and groups like that and, and the FAO uh, and the United – I mean the United Nations and all these major organizations spend hundreds of millions of dollars a year trying to solve the food problem, and they never solve the damn food problem. So, you know, I'm going to show up and say, all right, McFly, McFly, here's a building, let's go, and kind of do it that way. And so I'm developing those relationships through banks, through, you know, my contacts that I have in in different levels of governments and and institutions. Well, excellent. I mean, I guess definitely, you know, networking overall will be able to help things like this get through. And I have to say it's been great to – um, see that you've been able to get, you know, contacts in some of these other countries. Was that just through the conferences? Is that where you met the people to make those kind of connections happen? Yes, exactly. Every time I go and do a lecture, I end up meeting people who have connections with other people. And as as my dad used to say, it's not so much what you know, it's who you know. It's it's knowing the right people and getting. You know, I could I could be a genius, but if I don't know anybody, it's not going to happen. Nothing's going to do anything. Um, First of all, I'm not a genius, <laughs> but, but uh, you know I'm pretty good at bringing teams together and getting things done. So that's that's really what it's all about right now, and that's where we are in in developing the CFS brand, for lack of a better word, um, and our image and what we stand for and what we're all about and what we're trying to push towards. Um, so likewise with Switzerland, when I went to Switzerland. That's like a melting pot of countries. That's uh, it's the Coast Conference in Switzerland this last summer is where I met my two African advisors. Uh, I met uh, a wonderful woman from Nigeria and a brilliant young man from Uganda, and um, they were very interested. In fact, I'll give a comical kind of take on this. Um, this really happened. <clears throat> I was delivering my presentation about CFS to this whole group was about sustainable farming at the conference. It was like another track. And I do my thing, and this one guy who obviously sounds like he's from Scandinavia or something goes, people in Nigeria are never going to like something like this. This is too high tech. It's too this, it's too that. So this guy who's not even from there thinks it's his position to say what they will or will not like. Right. And I'm inside my head, I'm laughing my ass off because sitting right behind him is Habiba, my, the, the woman from Nigeria, who I just asked and she accepted to be on my board of advisors not two hours earlier. <laughs> so so here, here's this guy spewing off at the mouth. And I, in the back, of, I said, I'll play it cool. I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to let it go. And I go, well, that might be what you think, but I'm sure there will be connections that could be made. And, and Habiba stood up and said, no, 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 no. I'm going to stop this right now. People in Nigeria would love a system like this. 
You want to know why? All the young people are leaving their boring villages and they're going into the city. And that's where most of the problems are. You put a building like this back in the village, that gives them a reason to stay. They can advance their education. They can learn computers. They can learn technology. They can do all of that and provide for their village, have a connection to their home, be part of their community, which is what they want to be in the first place, because that's how African villages work. And this building can be a catalyst to refortify the village mentality and bring people out of the cities and out of the slums and start developing the villages and letting them become their own cities and towns. Right. And I was like, done. I'm out. Thank you and good night. Drop the mic. (laughs) (laughs) How did the guy react? He shut the hell up for the whole rest of the time. (laughs) He didn't say a word. Uh, It was like, you know, I, I I could not have come up with a better rebuttal than what she basically said to him. And uh, it was awesome. It brought a big shit-eating grin to my face, and, uh, and I moved on. But uh, you'll find a lot of people want to speak for other people as if they know. But this, that's exactly why I like meeting people from the regions that we're going to be working in. And so by going to Switzerland, I now have the connections in Uganda, in Nigeria. I'm developing additional connections in uh, Somalia and different parts of, of uh, northern and central Africa. Um, you know, some places are a little more dangerous than others to go into, so you've got to kind of walk that fine line on what's honestly realistic at the time and what's not. Uh, sadly enough, I just can't save everybody at once. Um, but we can strategically place ourselves to kind of start getting in there, fingers, fingers into the pie, and kind of go from there. Well, that's great. With any luck, you'll make, you know, still more uh, connections while you're in these other countries. You know, um, definitely. You know, um, Doug, uh, you know, I, I definitely am glad that you've managed to, to push this thing even further and get this idea to more people's heads. I mean, I still remember when this was something that was just like kind of an idea germinating in the back of your head. I think we talked about it like way long ago on one of our radio broadcasts, actually, you know, when you were talking about the possibility of developing, uh, you know, automated farming systems. Mm-hmm. Um, and now, um, you know, you've talked about uh, multiple different, options here, you know, as far as powering this thing, obviously, I assume you've looked into alternative energy sources to be the the main power source. Like, uh, did you ever, I may have linked this to you at one time, did you ever look at the power tube, which is like a, an alternate approach to geothermal? The power tube? Nope, I have not. I'll definitely uh, I, get you that information. You know, I, I'm open to any clean energy system. I, I mean, in some places, it'll be smartest to tap geothermal if it's available. I mean, in some, depending upon where you are, tapping wave might be better. Uh, mm-hmm. Solar and wind are easy, though. You just throw that on the roof. You have a 20-foot-tall building with a 20-foot-tall tower with a wind turbine on it. You got a you know a wind turbine 40 feet up in the air where the wind speed is relatively consistent above the tree line. Um, you know, that alone can do good 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 work. Uh, and vertical axis wind turbines have become a lot better lately. Um, <clears throat> you've got uh, Philadelphia Eagles. Their stadium has a boatload of wind turbines that power a good percentage of the stadium, um, stuff like that. So uh, the potentials are there. But, yeah, wind, wave, solar, geothermal, all clean energy options because this thing has to be off the grid and it has to be clean. So it's not like I'm putting little mini nuclear reactors in the building. That's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> yep, for sure. Um, 
I wanted to ask you also, because uh, this is a topic that's been kind of a big issue lately that I've been discussing. Um, do you think that nuclear is too dangerous? Does Fukushima and things like Chernobyl prove that we should be moving to different alternatives? <clears throat> I'm going to answer that like this. I don't think it's relevant. We don't need, we just don't need nuclear anymore. There's so many other options out there that for me it's a relevance issue. Do we, do we, is nuclear safe? Could they make it safer? Sure, probably. Um, but in the long run, is it necessary? I mean, if every home had solar panels on it and you had a distributed grid, you don't need any of that crap. I don't need nuclear. Um, we just need to implement the clean energy systems that we know that exist. And over time, they'll get better and better. You know, the efficiency levels of solar panels will improve. Um, there's so many different ways to capture solar now anyway, besides just solar panels. You've got solar glass. You've got uh, also thermal glass, which does, uses temperature differential from the outside of the building to the inside of the building. you got piezoelectric. You, got all, you can walk on the floor and generate power, you know, over time. Um, all that and do that on sidewalks and stuff like that in high traffic areas. I mean, there's all kinds of ways to generate clean energy that I think the nuclear argument is not so much about is it safe or is it not safe. The, the real question is, is it even necessary? That's kind of uh, where I was going with that, too. I mean, I do believe that it's possible that the, the damage of Fukushima might be over-exaggerated to some degree, but you know, few things terrify me as much as... Uh, radiation gone awry, <laughs> you know, um, and it just seemed to me that, you know, if we put as much money into the infrastructure to developing some of these alternatives, and I'll make sure that I get you information on the power tube. I had that guy on my show a while ago, um, you know, that we could be just, why not just work with things that don't have, you know, explosive, <laughs> you know, uh, right. mass death causing abilities in them. Right. And that goes with coal also and, and all the other old ways of, of creating energy. I mean, there's the new ones are, are viable. Uh, and you start doing the distributed network of, of all that. You don't need to have central power stations. In fact, that's one of the biggest problems. Um, you know, power station goes out in New England because of a snowstorm and, you know, 100,000 people are screwed. And it's a dead of winter and it's cold and, you know, people are freezing to death. Um, but if everybody had their own little bit of solar, a little bit of wind and all that, there is no one system to catastrophically fail. Uh, you know, it's funny how people talk, you know, yeah, forget it. Never mind. You get the point. <laughs> <laughs> no, I agree. I, I guess, um, I got into an argument with somebody not long ago about that and they were suggesting that, you know, that, uh, nuclear was totally fine and then you know we don't need all these others and the supposedly all alternative energy forms are uh, you know basically not worth it etc cetera, etc cetera. and I actually think I tagged you in that conversation but you were too busy to um, to see it but it was actually ironically on my my normal Facebook wall not my activist one and hmm. you definitely see uh, a difference in the way things are you know when you have two Facebooks you know one that's for people that you you know that you don't share activism with um, mm -hmm. You know, and then the one that you do, you know, and I had to make that other one because of the fact that people got sick of reading my activist stuff all the time. Yeah. And what I found was that, uh, ironically, now about four or five years later, that more and more of my friends who would have said, you know, please stop posting that stuff, are posting that stuff themselves. 
Yeah. <laughs> yep. You know, so, I mean, uh, the world consciousness is definitely changing, so. I, I think so. I think so. It, it's a slow process, and a lot of people don't have patience. But, you know, Rome wasn't built in a day, and we can use all kinds of cute little terms to, to describe the obvious. But, you know, change is a slow process. If you do it too fast, it can it can have catastrophic backlash. So um, we don't want to shoot ourselves in the foot by trying to go so far so fast that we do something wrong and then set us back to the damn Stone Age or something like that. So um, I think there's a measured erosion that is going on and people are becoming – I mean, you're still going to have your – freaking nut jobs who are just addicted to materialism and think that their entire life what their life exists to be materialistic and have more than the joneses or whatever but you know that's a psychosis that just kind of comes with the with the territory um i i see it all the time and now that i'm traveling around the world i'm also seeing it around the world that i firmly believe there are far more people waking up to a better way of doing things than there are people clinging to the old. Yeah, you definitely see it, especially in the way that the the old has changed tactics now. They're getting more and more desperate. You know, like Fox News doesn't even try to pretend to be fair and balanced now. You know, mm-hmm. they just spit out their rhetoric, you know, all day long and they get more and more desperate and it's the funny thing is, is it's still working on their very small percentage of people that actually valued their programming in the first place, but you know, more and more people are turning away from that as days go by. And it doesn't necessarily mean that they're jumping into the bed with the extreme liberals either, but um, I think that people are starting to recognize you know, the difference. I remember uh, somebody posted a meme not long ago that had a picture of Obama with his feet up on a desk, you know, and it just said, you know, if you think that getting this man out of office will fix all the problems, you don't understand the problem. Right. You know, I've seen that. Yeah. And, and that's it wouldn't matter who the person was, whether it was somebody who thinks Hillary Clinton should be president or whether or not someone thinks that Romney should have been president or, you know, or yet another Bush is running for president. That really uh, scares the hell out of me. <laughs> you know, um, it, it definitely, I think that people are starting to get it. I, I guess the only thing that I... Uh, that I wonder what will happen next is going to be, you know, what stage we go to next. Um, when that awake awakening, you know, huh, see what I did there. You know? Yeah, see what you did there. Uh, you yeah. made an awakening. Yeah, go watch <laughs> awakening. Um, you know, or whether or not, uh, you know, like basically what stage will come between the awakening and and you know the final phases of us hopefully finding a peaceful solution for mankind. So. Yeah, and I. I don't even like to pontificate on that because I have no idea what the next two weeks is going to look like. Well, how the hell can we possibly predict what the what the official transition is going to what the what the flip is going to be like? I mean, it's I, I it's I think it's almost a wheel spinning waste of time to think about what's gonna what's gonna happen. What's gonna are we gonna implode? Are we gonna fight each other? Are we gonna start singing kumbaya around bonfires? I mean, what? What's going to happen and stuff, and I, I think it's probably none of the above. Um, it's a slow erosion process that will just start to perforate throughout, and yeah, I think it's going to start off with entire cities flipping over, you know, uh, maybe small <laughs> towns flipping over, uh, and kind of becoming much more self-reliant on their own agriculture, the sustainable agriculture, and they once they sure. 
Oh, 90 seconds. Well, anyway, I think it'll be a piecewise thing that starts small and grows from there. No, for sure. And that's something we can definitely talk about again. Doug, thanks for coming on again. It's always great to have you on. Um, go ahead and tell them you're where your YouTube channel is. Oh, God, I hardly ever post there anymore, uh, just because I have no new videos. Uh, it's uh, TZM Social Evolution was the channel I made. You could also just look it up through my name, Douglas Millett, and you'll find it. All right. Well, thanks again for everybody for tuning in tonight, and thanks again, Doug, for coming on. Hopefully we can have a follow-up show, and you can tell me about the different things that happen to you in these other countries. Sure, and if anybody wants to follow us, we're on Facebook, Cyber Far- Cybernated Farm Systems, Twitter, Cyber Farm Sys. Uh, we've got the regular website, which is cyberfarmsystems.com. There's lots of ways to connect and follow us and see what we're doing. Excellent. Thanks again, Doug. All right, thanks, Neil. Appreciate it. You've been listening to V Radio. Please check out my website, v or v-radio.org. And if you like this show, consider a donation. And now we are.